I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Nightmare Before Christmas. This is a show we've been planning for a long time, and we decided on the 30-year anniversary to cover it with Toby Skeels Jungius, who is a very good long-time friend of the show, and who spent his thesis writing about stop-motion animation, making him literally the most overqualified guest we have ever had on. There's only 365 days left till next Halloween! <laughs> 364! Historically speaking, I was 13 when this emerged, and it, I should have seen it, and I should have loved it, but it wasn't until Halloween of 2000, my first with Sharon, that she put the DVD on for me. I wasn't avoiding it or anything, I just, it just, it was never there. 
<clears throat> now, we were both really into The Nightmare Before Christmas for many years. It was, it was a holiday tradition for us. We have a, a Jack Skellington in Sandy Claus outfit on our Christmas tree every year, just instead of a star. And Sharon is drinking out of her Sally mug, which is tall and she's had for well over 10 years. Amazing. So the two things were, firstly, Sharon and I got heavily into Guillermo del Toro, who is the filet mignon of modern day gothic filmmaking, teaching us all layer after layer of detail within his every commentary, which by contrast makes Tim Burton, who's one of the, it's noteworthy to say, most boring commentary directors of all time, but it, oh, yeah. by contrast, it makes him the McDonald's of gothic, the most marketable face of the style, at least until the Harry Potter films came along. He might outstrip them eventually. <laughs> His films, as we discussed on our shows, on Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, his reimagining of Planet of the Apes from 2001, and the really rather excellent Big Fish and Sleepy Hollow, his films are in no way as deep and textured as we would wish them to be. I'd say Big Fish is, but that was written by John August. Mm -hmm. The secondary aspect is that we started seeing negative takes on The Nightmare Before Christmas, decrying it as hot topic commercialism, or worse, interpreting the core message of the story to be, stay in your lane, you must continue to do what you've always done, or the whole world collapses. But if you think about these two aspects together, one cancels out the other. Either Tim Burton is in fact a thinker, and he made a film that actually in some ways supports the Kryptonians in Man of Steel, and the ants in Ants. Workers are born workers, soldiers are born soldiers, and scientists are born scientists, and that's just the way things are. Or, he just didn't think too deeply about whether this film was saying anything, and neither did the great Henry Selick who directed this. I think it's the latter, personally, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. This is Halloween candy pulled out of a Christmas stocking. It isn't nourishing, but it's a fun juxtaposition of the approachable, humorously child-friendly ghoulish and the twee saccharine chocolate box version of Christmas that gets paraded in front of us on every greetings card on an annual basis. Mm. Now, we're hoping for the lion's share of this episode to be ceding the floor to Toby, because Sharon and myself, and our usual brand of reading far too much into the subtext of pop conflicts, really is up against an animated wall here. The film <laughs> cost $24 million to put together, which is a bit less than Aladdin cost, and Nightmare Before Christmas netted $50 million back at the box office, making it a moderate success, relative to Aladdin's runaway success of a quarter billion. Mm. Though it still had more success than Muppet Christmas Carol in 1992's Yuletide, various theatrical re-releases of Nightmare over the years since, appealing to fans who had discovered it on VHS and DVD, retrofitted it to 3D and then ran that figure up to $91 million. And the really lucrative side was, of course, Yogurt's favourite, merchandising. All Hot Topic had to do was put lock, shock, and barrel on three separate t-shirts to sell three separate t-shirts to one 90s or 2000s goth kid. Mm. The film is based on a poem that Tim Burton wrote while working for Disney Animation in 1982. It's kind of the anti-Grinch. It's a fable based on The mm. Night Before Christmas or A Visit from St. Nicholas. He uh, did this following a short film that he had done for Disney called Vincent. Vincent. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to talk about that as soon as I've done this bit. Mm-hmm. After the success of Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> After the success sorry, of Vincent, which we will talk about in a bit, in 1982, Disney started to consider... This next bit's from Wikipedia. Disney started to consider developing The Nightmare Before Christmas as either a short film or a 30-minute holiday television special. However, <laughs> the project's development eventually stalled as its tone seemed too weird to the company, as Disney were was unable to offer his nocturnal loners enough scope. Burton was fired from the studio in 1984, and he went on to direct the commercially successful films Beetlejuice and Batman in 1989 and 1980. Beetlejuice and Batman. Beetlejuice. It's showtime in 1988 and Batman in 1989 for Warner Brothers Pictures. He went off and made his own films and they were weird and people liked that version of weird. And Disney got dollar signs in their eyes. Over the years, Burton regularly thought about this project and in 1990 he found out that Disney still owned the film rights. He and Selleck committed to produce a full-length film with the latter as director. Burton's own success with live-action films piqued the interest of Walt Disney Studios chairman... Jeffrey, no! our mate Jeffy, <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg, I like money, <laughs> who saw the film as an opportunity to continue the studio's streak of recent successes in feature animation. It's noteworthy, by the way, that the Disney Renaissance, it went 1989, Little Mermaid, 1990, Rescuers Down Under, that was kind of the last of the old, then 1991, Beauty and the Beast, 1992, Aladdin, 1994, The Lion King, which made 1993 the only year of this decade that they didn't actually put out one of their canon. So it's possible Jeffrey thought this would count. Because, I mean, they, if they count the CG animation, why wouldn't they count this? Yeah. Do you know, well, we witch about Jeffrey, but I bet Disney would kind of like him back right now. Disney was looking forward to Nightmare to show capabilities of technical and storytelling achievements that were present in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Walt Disney's picture president, David Hoberman, believed the film would prove to be a creative achievement for Disney's image, elaborating, we can think outside the envelope, we can do different and unusual things. On the direction of the film, Selleck reflected, it's as though Tim laid an egg and I sat on it and hatched it. (laughs) What a visual. So... Nightmare Before Christmas is very much a Nexus film when it comes to the landscape of stop motion, or at least stop motion in the US, because it released in 1993, and that was the same year that Jurassic Park came out. And uh, there's a sentiment in stop motion academia that stop motion had these two avenues of uh, incorporation into US cinema up to this point. And 1993 is the year where one of those paths came to a sudden stop, while the other one continued to go. The first path is stop motion as special effect. Think the Ray Harryhausen, the Phil Tippett in Star Wars and uh, Terminator, Robocop, all of these moments that you look at with adoration and fondness for as jerky their movement is you have a great fondness for them or at least i do speaking with a six-year-long bias i suppose (laughs) um but in 1993 phil tippett was brought in for the special effects on jurassic park because dinosaur special effects had this heritage because 
it seems as if in the long history of cinema and animation, which is kind of a circle and you speak about their history overlapping, dinosaurs are kind of the first point of call for what we use new developments in visual technology to render because you have Gertie the dinosaur when someone would put together a bit of a trick cinema where he would have a 2D animated film projected onto the screen and he would talk in front of his audience as if he was interacting with the pencil lines on a napkin that was the equivalent of it when compared against where Jurassic Park would ultimately end up. And then you have artists like Willis O'Brien, the stop-motion animator for uh, King Kong and a number of other films, and his protege, Ray Harryhausen, who has such a decades-long legacy of stop-motion creatures that his work is still felt in many animations list of influences whether they're working in stop motion like here or in films like pixar's monsters inc because they go to a restaurant called harryhausen's it's a nexus film because in 1993 the stop motion effects for jurassic park they still used armatures and things like that and i do not need to tell you about the uh details of jurassic park because Alex is in the room, and if you're listening to this, odds are you've heard the School of Movies Jurassic Park show. It's one of our but, best and remains yeah. one of my favourite films. Yeah. And there is, famously, there was a moment where Phil Tippett was shown by Steven Spielberg a like early test footage of the CGI, and a bit like that Gravity Falls episode where there's a stand-in for Ray Harryhausen whose work is superseded by this really basic looking uh, gonk of a digital creature and the headline says, it looks so real! (laughs) Uh, Phil Tippett looked at this, saw the writing on the wall and said rather pithily, I think we're going extinct. That is kind of the case. You wouldn't really see stop motion used as the stand-in for really what Harryhausen and Tippett were doing. And then the avenue for stop motion being the foundation of the film, not just a small delightful slice in a live action cake, but the entire goddamn pastry, uh, is in Nightmare Before Christmas. You have this film that decided we're we had this idea for a half hour special because that was just what the format was stop motion and hey if it's a holiday special let's make it a half hour thing like those Rankinbass films and it was by no means the first uh, feature length stop motion f- film it, there was even I think the Rankinbass Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July so there was a heritage of stop motion during seasonal clashes because money question mark but in this case it was the start of two prominent names in stop motion you have tim burton who provided not an insignificant amount of the building blocks as the image of his egg being laid suggests it was just that he provided a lot of the character designs, the original framework for the story, and sketches, but he didn't, he wasn't on site. He was there reportedly 
between five and ten times over the span of the years of development that this took. So Henry Selick is the one who kind of took the ideas of it and made it actualized. And once you get to this point, you have the films of Tim Burton, you have the films of Henry Selick. And for perspective, Nightmare Before Christmas is a modest success when you compare it against the two Disney-produced animation animated films that it was sandwiched between. The Lion King and Aladdin, though, are unfair <laughs> comparisons, I would say, because Nightmare Before Christmas was the most profitable stop-motion film at that point. Of course, there wasn't a huge amount of competition, but it wasn't until Chicken Run by Aardman that that record was snatched by them. And once you get past that, you see just how much that Nightmare Before Christmas really is this combination of a lot of the pieces that were already there for stop motion in the US, because it has these uh, creepy designs that are reminiscent of some of Harryhausen's creatures and things like that. The, I, to me, the stop motion skeleton is this iconic image of something that is solid and lifeless, but comes to move. To me, skeletons are almost the uh, perfect subject for stop motion because they embody so much of what it's about. Then you also have Rankin-Bass, the people who were responsible for Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And that was a film uh, produced by uh, Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass, who formed this company called Rankin Stroke Bass. That They were the guys who ended up doing uh, Thundercats, The Last Unicorn, and Flight of Dragons. Yes, they did produce some 2D work as well, but a big part of what they were known for was the specials that they would produce around the holidays, with the first example being Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And this, this would was probably a, be why they were planning on that format for The Nightmare Before Christmas originally. Precisely, because they it's a two-hit combo of that initial television special, which a lot of the animation for it was done in Japan by a production company called Mom Productions, M-O-M. Like, it's a subsidiary of Mom from Futurama or something. But uh, they had a lot of success with that first one. And it's a strange, strange film because it's all about the story that you know of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The, he's getting bullied by his racist colleagues and he then finds an elf who wants to be a dentist and that elf is considers himself a misfit and then there's a sort of texan style uh prospector character yukon and they go to the yukon isle cornelius of, yeah that's it and then they go to the island of misfit toys and rudolph says can i live here and the lion who or is he even a manticore? I don't know. I guess Brioth had Who a good... make a manticore toy? I don't know. I but... made it for the kids. It's poison. Well, that's why he's a misfit toy, yeah. Alex. That would make but sense. 
he says, oh, heavens no, you can't stay here. And Yukon just rubs salt into the wind by saying, ha, even among misfits, you guys are misfits. It's like, thanks, dude. Yeah, <laughs> you can't and say then, it. What, is this because, like, he's got a shiny nose. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. And, and I don't remember that verse from the <laughs> the, the Christmas song. No. And, and they, then the mantic, or he said, <laughs> no room for you at the island of creep toys. <laughs> yeah. So that's, Precursors that's to Sid's the, mutant toys under his bed. Yes, exactly. That's the format of a lot of the Rankin-Bass uh, fitness specials really they would take a pre-existing christmas song and then replicate the story of it with some filler and some crazy nonsense in between and there would usually be a narrator character who would be sitting you down by the cozy fire to tell you all about why don't you know the story of rudolph well let me take you back and there's even a reference to uh I think his name is Sam the Snowman in uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in uh, Christmas Town in Nightmare Before Christmas because a snowman that uh, Jack approaches wears some of the familiar clothing that uh, Sam does in nice. Rudolph. And so they would take these well-known songs and get the rights to them a bit like uh, Little Drummer Boy and white christmas which is the story of like i'm dreaming of a white christmas just like the heat wave i'm currently seeing outside yeah and we're, uh, we're recording this in july the most absurd time to think about halloween or christmas alex we are not recording this in july oh shit it's september it is september okay <laughs> yeah it feels like july yes it does do, do you know why it feels like july because august felt like february yes it's topsy-turvy. Yeah. All the seasons will just The island of misfit months. <laughs> yes. And then they had in a decent amount of success with each of these specials. Probably none as much as the original Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And in addition to just putting out a bunch of new specials, almost one a year for 15 years or thereabouts, they also had repeat airings of these specials and they kind of created their own competition because they kept on making specials and they kept on having those specials be like rebroadcast each year and then it's like well you're done with all of the uh holiday songs that you bought the rights to and you got outdone by your own special that you filmed six years ago and the other one that you're the original one is kind of putting a shadow over all of them so so people were game, tuning into the originals but not particularly fussed about what they were doing like so babies there was a baby new year one where this baby has giant ears and it's a year and if it doesn't yes. get to the something or other by midnight then we don't get a new year or something time destroys then <laughs> time will a... run backwards and man yeah. will eat himself <laughs> like Johnny it's... the monkey yes it's it's a peculiar uh, set of films, and that's why those films do give way to a certain like surreal creativity. Because as much as these were not designed to be stop motion films with a creepy edge to them, there is this idea in stop motion. Uh, 
for general audiences and in academia that the uncanny is this unavoidable inherent characteristic that you associate with stop motion because the uncanny is that overlap that fleeting moment where something cannot be necessarily uh, recognized as either familiar or unfamiliar and once your brain settles on what that is whether it be familiar to you or unfamiliar then the uncanny dissipates but stop motion is this set of tangible solid objects that your brain can see and observe and recognize as that and also it's moving through an invisible hand that is making them these solid familiar objects it injects them with unfamiliarity and it's something that only exists in the interim and so enter nightmare before christmas which decides to essentially uh, subvert the rankin bass christmas special because so much of those films had were just on the edge of that uncanny and unsettling feeling but never quite tips into it because they're so set on maintaining the cozy twee brand of like christmas card aesthetic then you have uh, burton's childhood in i think burbank uh, he would observe famously that that strange intervening time between halloween and christmas you would see some of the halloween decorations still up just as christmas stock was coming out and being sold in shops and things and so that idea sat with him and that's how where the idea for the story comes from that's why i call it a nexus film this long winding road of a point that i'm on is that nightmare before christmas is this film that takes aspects of harryhausen's creature animations by making by asking the question of well what if we didn't have those stop motion creatures be the attractions in otherwise you know average fantasy films what if we actually made a film that was about those creatures and monsters and automata and also combine that with hey everyone in the u.s associates stop motion which uh, with rankin bass because for a lot of people they just refer to it as like animagic and that's the strange thing that the u.s always had to come up with new terms to coin stop motion almost like it was a selling point like <coughs> the, well, that's has, animagic yes <laughs> and then harryhausen uh, there's a great trailer you can see for uh, one of the Sinbad films where it says this is Dynamation and it says that over and over it's like look at this ooh it's Dynamation and like it's uh, it's super solid emotion ooh or something like that and it's just like you, you can call it stop motion you guys like that's fine we, we're not going to be scared by the solid objects move as if by some sort of magic witchcraft do regular people know the term stop motion, or do they just go, it's like uh, Nightmare Before Christmas? Because I feel like this is the yeah. most well-known of no. all of them. I can tell you from several years of explaining what I do in my research to people that a lot of regular people do need it to be explained. And I think that it's doesn't feel to me like it's too technical a term, but obviously it 
kind of is to the uninitiated because I say, oh, well, I'm studying stop motion. And they say, oh, what's that? And then I'll say, well, it's a bit like uh, Leica. You know those really good films? And then they'll look qui uh, quizzically and say, it's a bit like Wallace and Gromit and Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> That's yeah. exactly what I was going to say. That I, I do know like regular people who are aware of the term claymation. Mm. And yes, Wallace that is and the Gromit term. is their reference point yeah. for that. You, yeah. One could be forgiven for thinking all uh, stop motion is in fact claymation, but they tend to use armature dolls. Yes, and uh, if you want another good subversion and parody of the Rankin-Bass special, watch uh, Abed's Christmas episode of Community, because that is specifically going with the idea of, like, the uh, strange, surreal nature of that winding nature of these rank and mass specials but it's probably the best episode of community and probably the best christmas episode of anything that i've ever seen it's Arbed's uncontrollable christmas That's community it. season two episode 11 i mean frankly just watch community season two you can't go wrong mm. and so that's what this film comes to it's this clash between all these different things and then afterwards we would get so many films that felt like <clears throat> it had redefined what US stop motion was to people and I think that that is something that we are starting to see audiences start to tune in to what stop motion is capable of because for a good couple of decades big feature length stop motion films did have to kind of go for a more like creepy Burton-esque uh design to it, whether that was because most of them were being done by <clears throat> Burton or by Selick or not, but Leica certainly goes towards that territory because Coraline, a Selick film, and then uh, Paranorman, and then with Box Trolls they start to just play with the idea of fantasy and kind of redefining the sort of strange settings that stop motion can take you to but even at that point people had a very clear idea of what stop motion was and now we are seeing a lot of productions on streaming on tv and film that are playing with that and it, things like robot chicken are actually doing a good job of playing with what stop motion can kind of communicate to people. I, I do suspect that part of why the gothic, slightly creepy, uh, more horror-inclined genres and, and themes of story tended to suit this style is because you, if you're going to do stop motion animation you have to be able to lean into the fact that it's going to look a little bit jerky, it, everybody's yes. movement is going to look a little bit strange, yes. the, the way faces look and the, uh, the, the let's say alternative proportions that tend mm. to have to be used in order to make the armatures practical. You've got to have big Precisely. heads. If you mm. also have big bodies, that's an awful lot of money on models. If mm. you can modify it so that they do have these slightly larger heads and larger features so that you can see what's going on on there, uh, then making the bodies smaller so that you can... Um, you do end up with this sort of slightly uncanny valley tone to it, which does fit better with more of a creepy theme. 
game. Precisely, and that's something that a lot of people uh, in academia are examining and discussing about, and it's kind of taken as, like, taken for granted that that is the characteristic of stop motion. And what my thesis presupposes is that you can actually take a lot of those same elements and arrive at very different destinations with those ideas, including in this film, because the uncanny is this meeting point between the familiar and the unfamiliar. And if you see them interacting with each other in ways that don't quite reconcile, which very much seems as if that is exactly what this film is saying is, oh, Halloween Town, that's so weird and creepy. And oh, Christmas Town, that's so familiar. It looks like a card I would send to my nan. Oh, yes, absolutely. And then Jack decides he's going to jack all over it, which... Uh, oh, what? good lord. <laughs> oh, good lord. Taking that again. Jack decides he's going to uh, put his uh, fingerprints all over it, and it... This guy's <laughs> But I bet they look like pumpkins. Yes, they do. <laughs> that would that would be a great visual gag. But there's so many aspects to it, not just the slightly jerky movement, which means that the few live action shots in the film, because they are there, things like wet the close up on the soup that Sally gives to the uh, Professor Finkelstein is a live action bowl of soup and that's why it's like huh, this looks a whole lot smoother all of a sudden because like do you want to animate liquid going through a spoon with holes in it in stop motion I didn't think so yeah <laughs> there's also the uh, like Oogie Boogie's lava pit thing that's uh, that's definitely mm. a live action yes and it's all, one detail I think is I never considered until someone pointed it out to me is that motion blur is almost impossible to do in stop motion yeah. because it's with animation in general you can do tricks to simulate motion blur because you can do things like smearing where in between frames there'll be these strange like distorted versions of the character's body because it's meant to simulate like the equivalent of Sonic mm. doing his uh, figure eight running animation. The so idea it'll kind of, of stretch with inertia. Precisely. But with solid objects, you can't really distort the model that you have. <clears throat> you have to create a physical uh, object that would be distorted. And in some cases, they do go that extra mile. In Paranorman, the finale to that, when the character's face is glitching and distorting, you can see these really uh, detailed replacement faces where in solid actuality it's these two faces blurred together but that's a lot of extra work to make that happen so what you're left with is a series of photographs of still objects that play in sequence so they do have that curious property of just Jack is always moving with a very crisp pin like, sharp, yeah. Yes, pin sharp, which it, and that's not a bad thing because it lends to the motion that he is moving with, but I've just realized they they don't tend to blur anything in this either. Everything is no. is perfectly crisply captured in depth of field, That's regardless right. of how far or close to the camera taking the snapshot is. The exceptions uh, with this would be the ghost effects, which was yeah. achieved using rotoscope, well, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Yes, and uh, 
that were the ghost effects and zero who was a combination of like a split beam process where they would photograph him through an like a sheet of glass and have a mirror to the side and i, I told you it was an old victorian trick did, yeah. i love that it, yeah it's a and it's a the same textbook stuff that harryhausen was nice. going from oh, so Awesome. See, this is another reason why, to me, stop motion is so fascinating because you can see the process mm. of movie making unfolding. At the end of the day, every film is a series of photographs strung together. The Lumiere brothers did stop motion. Exactly. It's the they did. The, the differences in the speed, but mm. because it's so slowed down, it actually gives you the opportunity to examine that process and the history of that process and how yes. each building block builds on the next. It's impossible to talk about stop motion without going back to the inception of cinema because that is what film is stop motion almost gives beyond animation and it is in some ways the purest consolidation of and refinement of film it's we're taking pictures of still things and then playing that back to you was a long time ago Longer now than it seems, in a place that perhaps you've seen in your dreams. For the story that you are about to be told began with the holiday worlds of old. Now you've probably wondered where holidays come from. If you haven't, I'd say it's time you begun. For the holidays are the result of much fuss and hard work from the worlds that create them for us. Well, you see now, quite simply, that's all that they do. Making one unique holiday, especially for you. But once a calamity ever so great occurred when two holidays met by mistake. I believe that Patrick Stewart does the opening narration of that. Oh, he does that um, on the original uh, soundtrack, yeah. Instead of the, it was the guy oh, who they got to play Sandy Claus in the uh, in the movie originally. You know who was supposed to play Sandy Claus, right? Uh, Vincent Price. Yeah, and yes. unfortunately, they they got him in. He'd started doing the reading, but he was very old by this point his mm -hmm. wife had died and he was mm -hmm. very sad so it was not long after edward scissorhands that they were doing this and yeah. he passed away around this time so yeah. they um ended up hiring someone who wasn't uh, ed, didn't do a lot of other things yeah uh, ed ivory who was a a local mm -hmm. burbank uh, actor who does a fine job as sandy claus Though I am kind of baffled that they didn't just get Patrick Stewart to perform him, or Christopher Lee. Hmm. 100%. And we know that... that yes, this child has been very naughty. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm Now not you're saying... on my nice list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I... I could say something about how at one point hearing Christopher Lee saying, oh, you've been very naughty, would... Not go amiss, but I think in this context I'm going You've to... You've been a naughty boy now, haven't you? <laughs> I was precisely the rest of Someone's clipping that for use later. <laughs> uh, Only coal for you in your stocking. So yes, Stop turning into Ian McKellen there. He always does. <laughs> does that comfort yeah. you? There are few who deny it. What I do, I am the best. For my talents are renowned far and wide. 
when it comes to surprises in the moonlit night, I excel without ever even trying. With the slightest little effort of my ghost-like charms, I have seen grown men give out a shriek. With the wave of my hand in a well-placed mode, I have swept the very bravest off their feet. Yet year after year, it's the same routine, and I grow so weary of the sound of screams. And I, Jack, the Pumpkin King, have grown so tired of the same old men. Oh, somewhere deep inside of these bones, an emptiness began to grow. There's something out there far from my home, a longing that I've of light, and I'll scare you right out of your pants. To a guy in Kentucky, I'm Mr. Unlucky, and I'm known throughout England and France. And since I am dead, I can take off my head to recite Shakespearean quotations. No animal nor man can scream like I can with the fury of my recitations. But who here would ever understand that the pumpkin king with the skeleton grin would tire of his crown if they only understood he'd give it all up if he only could. Oh, there's an empty place in my bones that calls out for something unknown. The fame and praise come year after year does nothing for these empty tears. Jack is the first Disney animated character that is entirely black and white in his design. The idea of having pinstripe white lines on his suit was something that I think Henry Selleck added to the design because they needed some way for him to stand out a little bit more, a detail that would show up on the film. And that means that he moves... I was thinking about this earlier this morning. Jack Skellington might be one of my favourite animated characters to watch because everything about him is speaks to his characterization through the film. He is tall and imposing and he moves like a spider with his long gangly limbs and that makes him, it sells him as frightening because he's not just a skeleton, he's this strange amalgamation of a half dozen different Halloween concepts of spiders and he has a bat bow tie that uh, is alive and you can see it moving on occasion and he 
glides and stretches across the sets that he occupies, but because he is so thin and stick-like, and if the animators pushed him too hard, he might snap, it means that he has this vulnerability to him, so that when he is singing songs like Jack's Lament at the beginning on the curved hill, or poor old Jack at the end when he is on the statue lamenting everything that he has done wrong, that you feel that vulnerability more. And they had to apparently fight Disney quite a bit because he doesn't have eyes. He has these sockets that work as his eyes. And Disney wanted him to have eyes because they thought like, oh, you can't just have a character. Like, you can't how- do a, a children's film with a central character with no eyes? Mm. Watch me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they use that for their own expression and they mm. colour his eyes with such deep black that it means that they become these new like means of expression. But you also have the opportunity to utilise that. Um, like one of my favourite shots is when he stands behind the string of lights in Christmas Town and he holds yes. it so that two of the bulbs are sitting in his eye sockets. And again, Amazing. he just emphasises that this this place, Jack, it is not you, but it has the potential. It's to, not for you, Jack. <laughs> it has the potential to quicken you where you have felt dead mm. and and um, you know unmoving. Yes. I compared it yesterday to uh, Babushka, or if you like, Pina Coladas and Getting Caught in the Rain. It would appear that the actual Jack's arc of the movie is feeling bored with his wife, which is Halloween, then having an affair <laughs> with Christmas, Christmas Town, town and, but also sharing that with the entirety of Halloween. And so then, you're saying he wants to fill those stockings? Yeah, and then... Um, going back to Halloween and reclaiming her. You're making this very unkid friendly. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, but okay, but, but yes, that, that that's better than just the stay in your lane an- is, analysis yeah. because ultimately yeah. he rediscovers his adoration for everything Precisely. that was great it's about him and Halloween together. Bringing yes. that idea of novelty and something that that makes him engaged and interested, and here's some new fresh ideas that I can bring to the thing that I was doing before, uh, mm. and that the. The, the connections that he recognises because he's tried this thing that didn't work are eventually what does allow him to come to the conclusion of that arc. Um, mm. Just to go back very briefly to what you said about the pinstripes as well, Toby, on the suit. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was a, a visual thing in terms of making him stand out from the black backgrounds that they wanted to do that for, but I love the fact that they, because they follow the lines of his bones and, and mm. limbs it, mm. what you've effectively got there is his inner structure yeah. in a in suit a t-shirt. <laughs> mm. um, and, mm. uh, and also the fact that that gives you this sort of like you said there's a vulnerability in the way he moves everything within him looks kind of like it's, it's as fine as cobweb and mm. yet it's beneath this face that everybody else finds so uh, so scary and so frightening The other thing about Jack is that his entire arc is internal and he won't let anyone else interfere with it. Every time someone tells him something that he should really take note of, he waves it off. From Mm. Sally to anyone saying, um, this isn't going to work, Jack. It's hard not to get swept up in it because Mm. of the, like, composite performance of uh, Danny Elfman doing the singing voice and 
Chris uh, Sarandon. Chris Sarandon, yes. Humperdinck. So, uh, yeah, exactly. And they selected him because I think they always knew Danny Elfman was going to do the singing voice, mm. but they needed someone who would, like, you could believe was what this voice is when he's speaking and not hitting those musical moments. And there are occasional instances in the film where Jack will have a line of dialogue that is just after or just before a song, and that is Danny Elfman saying it because it's a way of smoothing the connection between the two like voice actors involved in it. The uh, song he has in his tower was something's up with Jack at the end. Jack's goes, obsession. Yes. Uh, Eureka! This time, Christmas land will be ours! Is Danny Elfman. And that's that's why, to me, Jack's arc as this... It is analogous to a creator, someone who has found an audience, found someone who will routinely give him... Uh, adoration say like ah oh, this was really good really good but they want him to stay in his lane they want him to do things that they're familiar with like uh, play the play the hits play don't play anything new play that song again we see that when he does the town meeting song and he's trying to communicate what Christmas time is and they're not there's something you don't quite grasp and they're then at the end he just says well i may as well give them what they want yeah. and, and he turns sandy claus into a monster yes he is acquiescing to the demands of his public so he's as putting much it in as, a format they understand yes and he that means and i don't know if this is a question is would the version of christmas that jack ultimately ends up delivering be the same if the inhabitants of Halloween Town were a bit more open to that sort of, did he compromise on what he was originally going to do because he felt like he needed to bring in the people of Halloween Town to actually make this work, to convince them that this was something that he, that they could do. And I don't know. I think that it is this combination. A lot of the responsibility does lie with him, I would say all of it ultimately because as you say he gets told repeatedly this doesn't seem like a good idea and he'll it's like but you're the pumpkin king jack and then he just takes the thing and just mm. smashes it over his leg which is such a like sudden sharp moment and he goes not anymore he's he very flighty he can yes. bounce from one thing to another which is as you say infectious that his enthusiasm carries people along but the moment the rug gets yanked out from under him he gives up really quickly mm -hmm. listen everyone there were objects so peculiar they were not to be believed all around things to tantalize my brain it's a world unlike anything I've ever seen. And as hard as I tried, I can't seem to describe like the most improbable dream. But you must believe when I tell you this. It's as real as my skull, and it does exist. Here, let me show you. This is a thing called a present. The whole thing starts with a box. A box? Is it steel? Are Is it filled with a pox? A pox? How delightful a pox. If you please. 
Just a box with bright colored paper. And the whole thing's topped with a bow. A bow? But why? How ugly. What's in it? What's, What's in, in it? That's the point of the thing, not to know. It's a bat. Will it bend? It's a rat. Will it break? Perhaps it's the head that I found in the lake. Listen now, you don't understand. That's not the point of Christmas land. Now pay attention. We pick up an oversized sock and hang it like this on the wall. Oh, yes. Does it still have a foot? Let me see. Let me look. Is it rotted and covered with gut? Um, let me explain. There's no foot inside, but there's candy. Or sometimes it's filled with small toys. Small toys? Do they bite? Do they snap? Or explode in the sack? Or perhaps they just spring out and scare girls and boys. What a splendid idea. This Christmas sounds fun. I fully endorse it. Let's buy it at once. Everyone, please, now not so fast. There's something here that you don't quite grasp. Well, I may as well give them what they want. And the best, I must confess, I have saved for the last, for the ruler of this Christmas land is a fearsome king with a deep, mighty voice. At least that's what I've come to understand. And I've also heard it told that that is something to behold, like a lobster, huge and red. When he sets out to slay with his rain gear on, carting bulging sacks with his big great arms, that is so I've heard it said. And on a dark cold night, under full moonlight, he flies into a fog like a vulture in the sky. And they call him Sandy Claus. <laughs> Well, at least they're excited, but they don't understand that special kind of feeling in Christmas land. Oh, well. I think my favorite sequence in the film is Poor Jack, the song mm. that he sings in the graveyard. And I don't think it's in the final version of the film, but in the concept art, originally the grave that he is draped over, it reads Henry Selick, born 1952, died 2042. Okay. So he was he was giving himself a little like Some you know what like years. yes. <laughs> they so. also uh, removed from the they actually put this in the animation. Tim Burton's severed head was being yep. used as a hockey puck by the vampires on the frozen lake. They switched it for a pumpkin because that was a bit too macabre. There are so many severed heads in this film. Well, I think it was a case of they weren't sure that Tim would like like the joke or anything like that so like according yeah according to Selleck he feels like that was a bit off base he thinks that Tim would have liked it but I think probably a note he got from production at one point said like why don't you change that he's like fine but uh, it's okay. going... it just it just took two weeks to animate. We'll just do it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just. Spin but... it. Well, you should have asked first. Yeah. That um, the, the superimpose a sticker of a pumpkin over it. <laughs> the sequence <laughs> in the graveyard when he does poor old Jack. Yes. One of the things that I noticed this time around is how. So the section of the uh, the song where he's talking about what went wrong, and then mm. decides well what the hell I went and did my best he is shoulder angel and shoulder demoning himself mm -hmm. so he when he poses in front of the 
uh, the memorial of the angel. The weeping angel, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh he never Something looks that directly would scare at it. Jack. Did you notice? Yeah. Um, so he, when he's doing the sort of the, the poor me and it all went wrong and oh no and all that, he's kind of leaning to the side so that the angel is over his shoulder and it almost seems like it's instilling some guilt in him and some realisation that maybe things did not go the way they went, Jack, because of you. When mm. he then goes to the, well, I tried, he shifts so that he is sitting directly in front of the angel with the wings that are not angel-like but quite bat-like are spread mm. out either side of him. And he's, you know, it, it, he's wearing the red and he's got this uh, mm. red glow that turns him into his own shoulder demon saying, you know what, you're going to take all of that, you're going to throw out what you could have learned and you're going to do it all again with Halloween. Yeah, but <laughs> I I always find that quite triumphant and I can absolutely, absolutely see the frustration that someone might have with that moment because there is a opportunity for reflection in saying you pushed away the opinions of everyone else and you caused some real like damage here and the i mean let's be clear the christmas sequence is goddamn hilarious yeah. my favorite one of my favorite shots is the bit where a snake is it's just eating slowly the tree. eating and there's the little kid going ah! It's the fact that it's taking ages, like the kid has to sit and scream and then like pause for breath and continue screaming as the snake's like yeah. arr, 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 arr. <laughs> uh, One assumes that uh, uh, that that possessed a uh, holly wreath also ate that woman. Oh, well, uh, uh, completely, yes. <laughs> to shreds. Uh, but... <laughs> That shot with the snake is uh, obviously a popular favourite because it's the front cover to one of my uh, books that I used as, I think, nice. Ken Preeb, uh, the advanced art of stop motion, decided, yeah, let's just have that. And so it's just this still shot of a snake with a tree half down, or halfway down its gullet and the hair standing on the end of the kid. Brilliant. But it does make me wonder what the Halloween Town do at Halloween. Do they release possessed to toys there, or? Yes, because everything is very much inside Halloween Town. They're putting on this show, mm -hmm. and it's almost like at the end of this is Halloween, and they have ah, we did it, we delivered Halloween. It's like to who? <laughs> I think that we may have to go by what will now be minted as Barbie rules. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yes, she does. Uh, it's absolutely yeah, Barbie. They rules. symbolically celebrate Halloween, and thus Halloween happens. Mm. That's that's it. I feel like maybe they don't in the real world. They've not experienced Jack before. Mm. Like the Halloween trimmings come out every year, and they may even be building on the idea that little goblin creatures will come and run around your house, and you have to put bread and milk out for them, otherwise they'll eat egg your trees, your, your house. Um, and eat your trees, um, but um, or the but, trees will eat you. <laughs> but they don't—they don't seem to have a sense that Halloween is presided over by anybody in the same way that Santa presides over Christmas. Mm. Mm. Uh, I'm assuming uh, Thanksgiving is presided over by Tom Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tom Turkey. Um, 
Okay, I just one more thing to say regarding Jack's songs because because yes. uh, it's it's the laments. Elfman mentioned this on the uh, commentary that uh, Jack's obsession, the one where he's doing all the uh, the scientific experiments, <laughs> um, and he's like, I don't understand what this is, and uh, it's I don't get Christmas. And by the end, he convinces himself, actually, I do get Christmas, and it should belong to everyone, and. In uh, uh, Poor Jack, he starts off, What have I done? And he's lamenting his his actions. But by the end, he's convinced himself, No, it's going to be the best year ever! I said to Mm. Will, he could start out, like, really down, and then by the end of a song, convince himself he's a big cup of bubble tea and that he wants to be drunk by all the teenagers, and he would believe it. And that's, what? like, it's his self-motivation. <laughs> yes. He has like, to lift his own spirits. He is animating himself, yeah. and the, the, the camera movement of the poor Jack as well is great, because they, I think Selick said it, and the director of photography, I, ah, uh, uh, one second. Pete Kozachik, uh, who did a commentary alongside Selig, he they talk about how in that song sequence, Jack had to stay relatively stationary and because he's draped over and it's a moment of the song where he has lost his energy and he is doing small, gentle movements, but they didn't want to do the trapping that so much of stop motion does which is you keep the camera stationary in one position because if you move the camera that just complicates the process of animation exponentially but for this sequence they wanted to the camera movement to match and to perform alongside jack to match his energy at that moment this right. gentle spinning and circle and just as if as he's singing it he's circling the drain coming down and down until he sinks to and this will read poor old jack, jack. and uh, it was such a, a great uh, depth to come to and then he gently lifts himself up and he, that moment where he says that uh, I, I really tasted something sweet, and that he, he got to experience this, and that this was worth doing because he did gain something from it. He has ideas that he can bring about, and he is more certain of who he is, and that like that's because he got to do this. And it's not like he is rejecting everything of Christmas because hey I'm like you know I'm just the guy the Halloween guy so I'm gonna do Halloween things again it's like I have new ideas that I want to do and I only had those because of what I did here and he still concludes the song by catching himself in his excitement and saying "Uh oh but before that I need to set things right and he thus marrying id and superego yes and by the end of it, he has allowed uh, Santa Claus to come in and uh, go at super speed to be to set things right. But the final song is where I feel like the idea that I liked to talk about in my thesis of it puts the familiar and the unfamiliar as embodied by Christmas and the inhabitants of Halloween Town. And rather than saying these things cannot coexist until they are resettled into their proper places, 
there is a handshake at the end mm. because Santa, go, Sandy Claus goes overhead saying, Happy Halloween! And Jack answers, Merry Christmas! And it snows and, in Halloween Town. And the inhabitants finally get to participate in Jack's initial song of discovery of, What's this? What's this? I haven't got a clue. And they, well, this is something new. And they are starting to become more open to things that are different, things that are new. So it was to benefit in some way that Jack did do this because he has not only allowed himself to get a taste of something new, but his audience, the people that were making all these demands of him. And that is how new art gets created, is when artists challenge themselves and their audiences, and that expands things. It expands what is possible, what we what we consider to be the genres that we set ourselves. We've talked so much in the past about how genres are useful for descriptive terms, and but that sets, that idea of set categorization just leads to stagnation unless we do let Christmas get a little bit of Halloween and Halloween to get a little bit of Christmas. And that's why I do feel like as a story about the creative process, it it does have a bit of thoughtless stay in your lane thing idea baked into the broader movements but it's in how it's filled in and guess who was responsible for the part of the story in this film that had the in-between stuff filled in henry selick of course where, where the nuances come forward that the emotion, the sincerity of it comes from. And because Danny Elfman, who is the person, the embodiment of all the song's creative identity, creative energies, him voicing Jack, I can't think of anyone that he resonated more with. And that's why I believe him when he said that he found this so easy because he could just go into uh, Jack's headspace so easily. And as a little uh, Easter egg, uh, in Corpse Bride, the next Tim Burton film, Danny Elfman was involved in that. And not only that, but he plays Bone Jangles, the singing skeleton Nice. Remains of the Day. Very nice. Very mm. nice indeed. Also, if you want to look at it this way, and I do, um, there is something in there about the whole, like the the capitalistic way of looking at seasonal celebrations is okay now we have this set of merchandise out and it's halloween and now it's the day after halloween and we have the christmas set of merchandise out it is all very pigeonholed it is all very this now this and there's mm. no like there's no smooth segue in between the two that is mm. not how the year works and that is not how seasons work they overlap they move from one to the other and that's the whole point 
The most depressing of these cutoff points being, as soon as New Year's done, it's like, right, that was your Christmas, that was your New Year, there's Easter eggs on the shelves already, but fuck off and enjoy January. Yeah, but you've still got a big chunk of winter to get through. And you're sitting there in the snow and the sludge and the grey skies and the cold and the rain and the misery going, I'd really like a bit of that Christmas that they were overdoing just a few weeks ago. Absolutely. Mm. The, the whole point of Halloween and, and, and what Halloween has grown out of is that it's the point of the year when you are preparing everybody for the, the winter that is about to come. You're getting all the food that you're going to dry, store, prep, whatever you need to do to it to make it last through the winter months. Um, Gotta so get that, that loser candy. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, and you're setting to rest all of the the bad things that have happened throughout the year, all the all the, the loss that you've felt, all the things that have, have gone on, so that people aren't having to carry them into the most depressing season with them. And it's the the point of Christmas and what was Yule is that you've got this festival of enjoyment and light and celebration to give people enough of an oomph to get them through until that the first shoots of the snowdrops and the, the green leaves coming through in spring but it is not a tonight this tomorrow that it, it's it takes time the halloween celebrations are supposed to take a few days you've got halloween then you've got all hallows eve uh you've got in in certain cultures you've then got dealus Myrtos, which by the way oogie boogie's realm really reminds me yes. of the Day of the Dead uh, mm -hmm. decorations. Also, you've got in Britain Guy Fawkes Night, which just happens to yeah, be around this time of Absolutely, which is about a week after that, precisely. Then after that, everyone celebrates Sharon's birthday. Of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but then... Need to, and, oh, I need to get around to my plans for the... <laughs> and then, we all dress as Scorpios. Christmas celebrations are not supposed to be one and done either. Twelfth night. Yeah. It, it, it is supposed to stretch over a period of time. These things are slow and we have made them quick turnaround in a box. You, you buy this this day and you buy that that day. I don't even understand buying Easter eggs for the kids on January the 2nd. Why? Well, I, I you've got till April. Dial it I back saw, a bit, guys. You're wasting I shelf space. I saw mince pies on the shelf earlier. It's like... Who's getting them now? By the time we get to December, those will be some crusty-ass mince pies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're great uh, for a heat wave. Frankly, especially <laughs> now that we are... It, it, it is becoming less possible to rely on the sequence of seasonal weather changes and uh, environment changes that we have been used to up to this point, as epitomised by the fact that it, we are over a week into September and we are experiencing July weather. Yeah. Soon, tropical Christmas. Yes. Yeah. We'll swap with Australia. Christmas Eve yeah. goes to summer camp. Yeah. Kidnap Mr. Santa Claus? I want to do it. Let's draw straws. Jack said we should work together. Three of a kind. Birds of a feather. Now and forever. Better plan to catch this big red lobster man. Let's pop him in a boiling pot, and when he's done, we'll butter him up. Kidnap the Santa Claus, throw him in a box, bury him for 90 years, then see if he talks. 
where? That he will cook it rare! I say that we take a cannon, aim it at his door, and then knock three times, and when he answers, Sandy Claus will be no more! You're so stupid, think now if we blow him up to smithereens, we may lose some pieces, and then Jack will be just black and green! Kidnap the Sandy Claus, tie him in a bag! Then see if he is sad Because Mr. Oogie Boogie Is the meanest guy around If I were on his boogie list I'd get out of town He'll be so pleased by our success That he'll reward us too, I'll bet Perhaps he'll make his special brew A snake and spider stew and we take our job with pride. We do our best to please him and stay on his good side. I wish my cohorts weren't so dumb. I'm not the dumb one. You're no fun. Shut up. Make me. I've got something. Listen now. This one is real good. You'll see. We'll send a present to his door. Upon there'll be a note to read. Now in the box, we'll wait and hide until his curiosity entices him to look inside and then we'll have him one, two, three. Pin up the Sandy Claus. Beat him with a stick. Lock him up for night. Okay, so Lock, Shock and Barrel, uh, voiced by Paul Rubens, R.I.P.D., Catherine O'Hara, and Danny Elfman again, as uh, the Halloween's trick-or-treaters. They originally were going to be still gleefully watching Sandy Claus get tortured at the end, eating the equivalent of popcorn, and the, like this was animated, and the notes said, you know what? Can they help and, and like get Jack to help save the day so that they feel some measure of remorse? Because otherwise, mm. they are crazed little murderers. They've got <laughs> um, a, a really child malevolent energy, if you will. They're they're, they're they're excellently pitched because they're like any kid watching who's like a little stinker will be like, these are my faves immediately. Yes. Mm. The I'm really glad that uh, Catherine Hara, well, she also voices Sally, and yeah, yeah, so it's a great way to get her to portray these two very different energies, because uh, they, the song of Kidnap the Sandy Claus is a favourite of mine, it Mm -hmm. just has this bouncy energy that explodes into la 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 I'm amazed that they managed to make the models work in a way where you had these characters with masks and they get to take the masks off mm. and you see the facial expressions underneath because that's you're tipping your hat almost and saying look these are characters who we take off one mask and they have a different expression underneath. It's like, that's just replacement animation. Meanwhile, the yeah. clown with the tearaway face was just <laughs> a clown without a face underneath the face. Yep. What a terrifying sentence. Yeah. And Danny Elfman voices that clown with the tearaway face, I think. So he does. he's pulling triple duty in playing three characters in the film. And the my favorite lyric in the I keep saying my favorite, but this is a film with many faves of mine. But the most poetic, brilliant line of uh, the this is Halloween is 
I am the who when you call who's there. Nice. What a what an enigmatic and chilling thing that's come that just really is quite spine tingling. There's no way that Danny Elfman wasn't riffing on uh, the poem "The Man Who Wasn't There" for that particular cluster of mm. lines. I'm mm. thing hiding under your stair. It's yesterday upon the stair. I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish, I wish he'd go away. It's mm. Jesus Christ. Jeez, well, there's yeah. also the "I am the shadow on the moon at night." Mm. A shadow on the moon means something just passed in front of the sun. Yeah. Mm. And, and a very confusing one, because that's just Oogie Boogie. Yeah. So Lock, Shuck and Barrel are this fine balancing point between the obvious like cause of trouble uh, as the nervous two-faced mayor, what a great design, uh, will say, oh, Jack, it's Oogie's boys, forgetting that Shock is part of them, I suppose. But, Voiced uh, by Catherine O'Hara's Beetlejuice co-star Glenn Shaddix also uh, sadly passed away far too early and under tragic circumstances, but uh, something that uh, Selleck said in the commentary is that he doesn't believe that any of the inhabitants of Halloween Town are cruel. The It's as epitomized by the line, that's our job, but we're not mean here in this town of Halloween. It's there to reassure you that like, for all this scary, frightening stuff that is delightful, they don't mean harm. They are here to instill a thrill of just the terrifying of life's no fun without a good scare. That's what they're there for. Oogie Boogie is the exception. Yeah. And I think that having the kids be this fine line in between where they're a little bit like... Um, they okay. are mean. Like, they they, they are like mean. The, the kid who says, but we're not mean. Hang on, is that like... It's the old lady who sits around beside the the pugsley-looking kid. Yeah, but again, if you you look back at the traditions of Halloween, the idea is that the trick-or-treaters are children wearing masks to pretend they're goblins. Mm. The Mm. goblins would wear masks to pretend they were children. And these three are kind of like this brilliant little... Almost, they're almost like the two-faced mayor in the sense that they've mm. got this. Here's the. Their masks are actually smoother and friendlier than their real faces. Yes, and like the fact that they wear masks is a good combination with the their promise to Jack and them crossing their fingers behind, un- behind their backs. Uh, he asks them for a treat and they play a trick. The strange, strange idea of they just travel by walking bathtub. <laughs> I, I don't know where that iconography comes from, but it's just part of the surreal quality of all of this, same as that gorgeously evocative and iconic curled mountain that unfolds as you walk down it. In yeah, that that I think uh, the the shots where Jack is silhouetted against the moon and singing, and then at the very end when he comes back and, and Sally's up there and there's snow on it, are to me at least the, the best composited shots in the entire film. They are absolutely iconic and they mm. are genuinely beautiful. Yes, they have a solitude to them, which is the, mm. one of the only times that I really feel like Jack is lonely because he's surrounded by people who think he's the bee's knees. Yes. Uh, uh, is there anything on uh, Lock, Shock and Barrel that you would like to 
nothing more on that, but I do have some stupid facts for you. Oh, I love stupid facts. Okay, imagine you're Disney trying to work out when the hell to release this. You've oh, got, uh, it's a Halloween movie, but it's also a Christmas movie. Often people don't even know when to watch it, because if you watch it at Halloween, it's a bit too Christmassy. If you watch it at Christmas, it's a bit too Halloweeny. Everyone debates that endlessly. Yeah. Thanksgiving. So they uh, <laughs> split the difference. They released this on October 29th, making it very much a see it now just before Halloween. But then since it takes place in the days after Halloween, running up to Christmas, that's when we'll have it. It just feels like they missed the trick of, of like, have it out a week or so before Halloween so you get a big crowd going to see your big Halloween movie. And then I remembered, oh no, wait, hang on. 1993 was Hocus Pocus. I, I wonder right. if Hocus Pocus ate Nightmare Before Christmas's lunch. And then I went and checked the release date on Hocus Pocus. Oh dear. July. I, d I don't even, I don't, I can't, I can't. <laughs> understand Disney and their release dates. It just uh, doesn't make any sense. No. Who's like, ooh, it's, it's boiling mm. hot outside, I'm sweating like a pig, time to go mm. watch a, a Halloween movie about fun witches. Here's another... We don't I... all live in Florida, you assholes! <laughs> so. here's, here's another little fact. I believe that Night Level Before Christmas was the third film in a row or part of a three film long streak that Burton made films set at Christmas mm. because there was this Batman Returns, Batman Returns and Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands yeah. yeah. So, yes, uh, you've. Danny Elfman's music does go very well with Christmas. I mean, it, it actually, uh, he has a twinkling sound to a lot of his stuff and there's mm -hmm. a lightness to it which actually goes very well with snow which uh, has a sort of a, there's a femininity to it uh, but mm -hmm. also he delights in this creepy ghoulish bam, 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 sort of <laughs> bouncing uh, uh, fairground ghost train run amok which is possibly mm -hmm. why his stuff gets so embraced by goth chicks yeah, so I mean that <laughs> you, you sang about said with familiarity Danny Elfman <laughs> being uh, uh, more the uh, an author on this than Tim Burton. I think you're absolutely right on that. Mm. Well, he, he there's a, a moment that he's talking about it in the the documentary, and he says that the way they effectively got this written because Tim was really not dragging his feet, but he was finding it very difficult to kind of sit down and actually write something that everybody could follow. Again, shades of Richard Williams here. And mm -hmm. so what would happen is Danny would kind of extract enough out of him from just conversation that he yes. could go away and write the next song. And then he mm. would call Tim in under the guise of, here's the next song, Tim, I really want you to hear it so that you can tell me what you think. And then Tim would say, yeah, that's great. Well, that's that's the next slot. And then Danny would talk to him more about, well, what, what, what do you think might come next out of that song then, mm. Tim? What, what do you think might follow on from that? And then again, he would glean enough from him that he could kind of put the movements together to get to the next song. And that may possibly be why it is so back-to-back -back music, because that is effectively I, how it had to be constructed. This, this morning, I listened to all of the songs in the film, and it it's a great way of having an approximation of the film you get so much of the film's soul just by listening to the songs that it's like an abridged cut of it and it works tremendously mm. oogie boogie there's a lot of Audrey 2 in there. Well, well, well. Yeah. But there's what also happened? a lot of Cab Calloway in there who yes. was 
one of the foremost integrations of a live action person and working alongside animation and being animated himself. Like Cab Calloway yes. danced like he was animated and was animated mm. like he danced, if that makes sense. Yeah. And he was, his, his movements and motions were utilized in a lot of early animation. One of the other things I was gonna mention with regards to, to Jack and his, his skeletal outline, mm. he does feel like he's based on the Bone Dancers uh, from Disney's. Uh, we watched that the other day. Skeleton Dance. Skeleton Dance. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So it's on the, Disney Plus. It's actually really well restored. The way they do stretch and squash. Mm -hmm. Jack kind of imitates that with his very long arms that mm. can reach out further than they really ought to be. There's an unfolding way to how Jack moves, where it like as he stretches out, it's like it's not that he is stretch like his physical form is stretching it's just that he is unfolding and the next movement i'm not sure why oogie boogie was equated with gambling quite as much as he is i suppose it it, it sort of fits in with the layer that they designed around him I yeah that's a weird like quirk but it's fun especially as he cheats so it's almost mm. just like a, a, an aesthetic for him to uh, uh be entertaining around whilst at the same time he's going to torture you either way what? But Snake Eyes? <laughs> you trying to make a dupe out of me? Jack, you must be double dead! But there's something in the unraveling of him at the end. Like, they, they, they pull out the cord that holds this sackcloth bag of bugs together, and he falls apart and becomes nothing. That feels a little bit like the Babadook. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Which, again, I'm man. conferring a hell of a lot of substance forwards to mm -hmm. uh, the idea of being able to dispel the boogeyman by yeah. confronting it. But, well, uh, yeah. He is the inverse of Jack in that Jack is a solid skeletal frame mm. that is his entire core. Oogie is a hollow sack of made up of, like, bugs and yeah. things that aren't there mm. and apparently Oogie was the most difficult character in the film to animate and I believe it sense, like, yeah. yeah and yes he is fully a product of inspiration from Cab Calloway and Fleischer cartoons that yeah. would uh, draw from him there's a moment in the song that is a reference to Man in the Mountain with, and uh, Betty Boop, I think, where uh, he goes, uh, and now I'm going to do my stuff. What, what are you going to do? I'm, I'm going to do, do the best, best I, I can. can. Yeah. And Here's... If, you, if you feel like there is something about Oogie that is reminiscent to something you've experienced recently, his whole deal feels like he would be a great Cuphead boss because mm. they are drawing from some of the same of influence, especially the animated show of Cuphead, they're all drawing from early Fleischer cartoons and things like that, and just the way that, uh, say, like, Floral Fury or Floral Panic in one of the early ones where there's a giant flower and it goes like and all of that music and vibrancy is part of Oogie's soul and identity, and the voice that Ken Page the, uh, does for him is great because he is embodying what Oogie is because he's just this huge ba puffed up bag of air and 
the way he delivers things like, you know, you're trying to make a dupe out of me. It's this intake of breath, this exhale of, of like a vast lungs of something like sort of entertaining, but nevertheless cruel and yeah. I would imagine he and Dr. Facilier play cards. Yes, yes they do. They both, their designs stem from much the same pool mm. of inspiration. I've got a little factoid here. Mm-hmm. Would you like another reason to think that Dr. Finkelstein is creepy as fuck? How did we not mention Dr. Finkelstein yet? Yeah, um, yes, go for it. So, there was an initial plan, and it's even storyboarded and included in the special features, that Oogie Boogie, when he gets unthreaded, would be revealed to be Dr. Finkelstein. And the motives of it being that he was jealous of Jack stealing away Sally. Mm-hmm. That didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, anecdotally, when Tim Burton was told like that idea, he disliked the idea so hard that he kicked a hole in the wall. Ooh. Like, that was a good... I'm glad that if that is the case, I think that was a good note from Tim. Glad they didn't do that. It is a kind of a, ah, it was him all along, so the real villain in this was jealousy. You've got to learn my soul. I've got to learn your soul. If you do me wrong. I'm gonna do you wrong. You've got to kick the gong to catch along with me. What you gonna do now? Gonna do the best I can. Toby was saying about Oogie being the inverse of Jack. Uh, Here's a disturbing thought. Back in the days when you had to be quite wealthy to afford a coffin, the poor would be buried in Hessian sacks, which of course is what Oogie is made of. Whereas Jack comes out of a coffin. Yes, indeed. Mm. And when a body has been had a go at for some time by worms, when you tap the sack, that's what comes out. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> Triple yikes. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Finkelstein uh, is uh, played by William Hickey, R.I.P.D. Now, sadly, uh, he passed on quite a long while ago. I think uh, one of the last films he was in was Mouse Hunt. Uh, but yeah. apparently on set, he carried around a bottle and drank out of it regularly. And it was New York water. Like, he was, I carry this everywhere I go. And I was like, is this from the Hudson River? Is he just drinking this stuff? And that's what was keeping him alive? That sounds like the sort of thing vampires do, where they have to bring around, like, soil from their home territory. And That's what Sharon said. And I was like, you have no idea the blood content of the Hudson River. It's higher than 14%. Anyway, Finkelstein is a beautifully animated little creep. Uh, who is, uh, they just skirt the line between him being way too possessive and protective of Sally and actually caring about her. And I love the fact that by the end he's like, fine, I've built my own Frankenstein. She's got half my brain so we can have exactly the same conversation and Sally can be free. Yeah, and his head being this like solid metal case, but his lips being this leathery, duck mouth yeah. kind of thing he's and he's you never see his eyes they're always behind those little uh, lenses like a, a Mike Mignola Hellboy character mm, mm, he, he, there are elements of him that make me think of like Zola in uh, like mm. the computerized version just the round glasses and everything well 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 
claws, huh? Ooh, I'm really scared. So you're the one everybody's talking about. <laughs> you're joking. You're joking. I can't believe my eyes. You're joking me. You gotta be. This can't be the right guy. He's ancient. He's ugly. I don't know which is worse. I might just split a seam now if I don't die laughing first. Mr. Oogie Boogie says there's trouble close at hand. You better pay attention now, cause I'm the boogeyman. And if you aren't shaking, there's something very wrong. Cause this may be the last time you hear the boogie song. And I've nothing much to do I might just cook a special batch Of snake and spider stew And don't you know the one thing That would make it work so nice A roly-poly Santa Claus Dad, a little spice Whoa. Whoa. Oh. Whoa. Yeah, I'm the Oogie Boogie Man Release me now or you must face the dire consequences the children are expecting me, so please come to your senses. Ah, you're joking! You're joking! I can't believe my ears! Would someone shut this fella up? I'm drowning in my tears! It's funny! I'm laughing! You really are too much! And now, with your permission, I'm going to do my stuff. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going to do the best I can. <laughs> Why does she mean so much to you, Sharon? So I think what is appealing about Sally and what in particular was appealing about Sally to me when I was younger is that she is set up in terms of her her positioning. She is effectively a servant to Dr. Finkelstein, but also he perceives her as a daughter. She's kept in a tower. She's got this kind of Rapunzel thing going on and she's sort of perceived to be, at least by him, as docile and a little bit stupid and he dismisses her growing attempts at independence as just like teenage rebellion, it's a phase, it'll it's pass, the past, yeah. you'll, you'll settle into being happy, to living in my tower with me and being my unpaid carer for the rest of your natural born days. Oh, and by the way, because I constructed you, your natural born days are going to last forever. So, for all the parallels there with Jack and Halloween, this is the marital disharmony analogue. Indeed. Um, 
Um, <laughs> however, because Sally is actually, she is quite cunning and clever, she repeatedly finds ways to get out of this trap that she is yeah. in. And I, I love that line that she, her delivery on, like, you've poisoned me two times, three times. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and and the, the final escape where she lowers the picnic basket down on the sewing machine thread and I thought she was going to do the same thing for herself oh no 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 she just jumps but then when she gets to the bottom and she's fallen all apart she has the tools with her to reconstruct herself that that she has this dress that is patchwork and my guess is that she's made that for herself as well because I don't think that's the kind of thing that Finkelstein would think of and that means that the colour that she brings into Halloween Town because as we've said already Sally is, is the most colourful character in this that mm. is of her own construction and that is really important in terms of the Sally's arc is that she is always right she doesn't necessarily have all the answers but she's the one with this sort of instinctive feeling that this is a bad idea and she comes she has the most clarity about it everyone else <clears throat> it seems to be a kind of we're not sure about this because it's something new and therefore it's scary to us ironically we're going to keep it all at arm's length sally's the one who's actually had this vision that things are going to go wrong but Finkelstein tries to keep her locked up and so that she can't bring that insight to anyone else. When she finally gets out and takes that information to Jack, he won't listen to her and just tries to bring her in and, and get her to use the skill that everybody else perceives, her sewing. Um, that's the contribution that he thinks she can make rather than understanding that she's got some real um, concerns about what's about to happen. But eventually, when told to by Santa Claus, they do eventually listen to her and she does a, she, she, she is that like I say that's her arc is to be always right but to go from being listened to by nobody being listened to but not heard to actually being recognised as being correct mm. and she is always trying to take things into her own hands even if uh, like Jack is being and the others are frustratingly not listening to her it makes me feel like she's Lisa and the town are like Springfield. Yeah. They're just getting yes, caught up in so. it. <laughs> and uh, her putting the uh, concoction into the fountain, which is another one of those live action shots of just dry ice coming out of the set. And her, when she's seeing the footage of Jack and hearing like everyone else is celebrating that it's going so well, but she's the only one who hears something about the military being dispatched, and she thinks, that's probably a sign that this has gone too far. Let me see if I can uh, tidy this up. She goes to find uh, Sandy Claus and comes very close to uh, freeing him, and the expression that she has, which I think is another great element of characterization for her, is the the way her limbs will move independently of her when they're detached, how when Finkelstein pulls off her arm and then the arm starts bonking him on the head and it just like, <laughs> that's her rebellious arm, I guess. And also her hands slide down the rope to say, sort of cover Sandy Claus's mouth ahead of her. There's really good animation of it that I think 
maybe drawing from because there's a lot of Adam's family nods and winks here and there with the pugsley looking boy and her hands almost look like thing that's it the fact that Sally is always so down on herself as well that song about you know Jack won't hear her and won't listen to her it's she concludes on such a melancholy it's because I am not the one she perceives herself as being the one that's that's wrong that's made inadequately but Mm. she's handcrafted herself and repaired herself when circumstances break her and ultimately she is the one who is able to use that detachable leg to get Oogie over to the other side of the room so that she can try and free Sandy Claus (laughs) she's the one who is able to put things back together again the way they should be and Mm. that uh Jack joining her on the mountain as it uncurls at the end in front of the moon is it almost feels like Jack's not the one that gets rewarded in this movie Sally is I would say so yeah her reward Uh, is finally she becomes a person that people look to and go what do you think Sally because like maybe you should be mayor (laughs) I'm just an elected official I can't make decisions Oh. <laughs> Those idiots in Washington. <laughs> but Sally has, in her character design, there's such a fragile, elegant beauty to how she's constructed, which is, to me, presents her as the embodiment of autumn, because the thing that makes her up inside is dry leaves Mm. like dead leaves the symbol of autumn and that period of the leaves turning brown and fading away and the fact that she is always just a drop from a tower away from her arms all coming apart means that she is this person who is resilient but has to administer just care she needs to take care of herself and that's but the fact that it's her that she is always able to be the one to do that it's she isn't reliant always on someone else and thread. yes there was an early test animation footage they designed her with more of an unstable gait like she was walking as if she was moments away from like a leg or an arm falling off her but they realized that when they were doing it it looked a bit too much like she was drunk so they needed to they made her a little bit more stable and i like that because it means that she is this person who has this assurance and this presence even with that fragility being part of her character but it's i think that's why people you could you could reduce uh, nightmare before christmas absolutely to hey hot topic kids you invest your heart and soul into halloween and you'll get the pretty goth girl as well and all of that but it's it's not there's something more to sally as a person and we feel that in the film's Aside from her shapely legs, uh, there is very much a female gaze thing going on with uh, uh, Sally. I think she is intended to reach out to quiet, maybe quiet goth girls or girls who want to be more goth but are too afraid to, Mm. who Mm. want to say things but every time they do people don't listen to them. And 
the whole oh she's she's yearning after a boy thing is almost incidental to her character. Yeah. It's it's more sort of he go you here's a goddess of autumn character for you to mm. aspire to. Yeah, exactly. So that would be why she I think she's on so many mugs and t-shirts and pencil cases. Yeah, uh, thank you. You put that far better than I could manage. But the I just picked up what you guys were saying. <laughs> with it. It's a it, her song Sally's song is very well staged because it has all this mist going on and there's the street performers who are uh, backing her up on this song and she she doesn't travel too far from it it is one that actually allows the subtle nuance of the feeling and the emotion to carry it because it's not trying to stage it in a way that makes it much more bigger it just allows sally to be sally and to express anxiety in a way that doesn't sort of compromise her and overwhelm her it's just this thing that she is sitting with and settling on and her handling the black cat which I swear, there's one of these spindly black cats in each of these mm. films because it's, it's one... like the Pixar lamp. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly what Willow said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the um, the town meeting thing—it's a cat. You have to wrench its tail round and round. That is two different animals in Steamboat Willie, the first ever Mickey Mouse animated short. You've got the goat thing that you have to twist its uh, tail to make it produce music, and Minnie Mouse does that to that. And Mickey, in a frenzy, then goes and starts yanking on a cat's tail and swinging it round and round. Just, you know, saying like, who's the cat now, cat? And uh, Mickey did not. Mickey was a jerk when he first started. Those are both animals of the devil. Nobody objected. Yeah, good Uh, point. Speaking of Mickey, I believe one of the presents is meant to be just an evil Mickey Mouse. Yeah, the the like the teddy bear with the big ears and the massive teeth. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes sense. (laughs) The closing scene with uh, with Sally and Jack is just so tender and the when it hits the moment where it goes from jack just approaching from the base of the hill and saying like my dearest friend if you don't mind i'd like to join you by your side where we can gaze into the stars and sit together now and forever for it is plain as anyone can see we're simply meant to be And then it comes in with her, where it's not just him. It doesn't. It's not just his song because this is going into Sally's song. Mm. It has to be her voice that comes in. Beautiful, beautiful. Mm. That the reprise at the end actually manages to uh, uh, recapture 
what's this? Because the uh, Halloween towners are, are doing that, but also the uh, this is Halloween, Halloween yeah. with a modulation. It, yeah. it kind Jack's of takes us on. Okay. A... Yeah, but it wraps the whole thing up with a bow. Mm. It. Which a lot of musicals do. They'll close on a medley of all the greatest hits of what you've just seen. We don't get many stop motion musicals. No. That's I I would love to see more of it, but I think that the identity of this film wasn't that okay, when we have when we do more stop motion, let's do it creepy. Not not many of them combine it with that musical sensibility that's so part of its identity. Toby. Thank you so very much for recording this with us. It has been a long time coming. Before we go, is there anything you wish to promote? Okay, so I guess there's several things. There's uh, the usual place of Through the Wind Door, where, again, read New Century, and then when after you've done, come join us and we'll odds are have talked about the book that you've just read. And if you give us enough time, that will be a 100% certainty. In addition to that, on Through the Wind Door, we have a bunch of shows that are enjoyable tangents for us. We have interviews with the cast of New Century that we've just finished the final interview of Panther Soul, which I think might be the most extensive set of New Century interviews that we've ever put together. Mm-hmm. And just like Panther Soul, I think it's some of our best. Fittingly, and it's uh, for, for like that was the one with the most stuff in it, even over yes. Steamheart, I think. Mm. And in addition to that, we have well, a project that I am going to be early in development on is coming up. I won't go into too much detail because some of the details may change, but if you enjoy the way I talk about animation, something's on the horizon. And finally, if you have enjoyed the long, long notes that I have on this film, I'm currently working on the last part of my thesis. It's been put together and I'm doing an examination, which this show has been terrific practice for, but after that I'll be incorporating corrections and expansions on certain parts and some point within the next half year or maybe longer it will be finished and done so if you would like to read it just send me a message on uh, wherever you can get in contact with me, the Discord or on Twitter, I refuse to call it its other name, and I'll send this along to you this is the Robot Santa saying you've all been very naughty. My naughty list is filling up, and I am loading up my coal bazooka. In the meantime, how about we hear the nice children list? Everyone who sponsors School of Movies for $15, they make the list. So Aaron Lecluse is a good little boy. I sound like Richard Nixon. Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Browington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole. I sound like Sean Connery now, Frankie Punze. Greg Downing, there must be some mistake. He's been very naughty. Jameis Enright, now he's been incredibly naughty and incredibly nice. Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, he was the nicest of all. 
Jorn Clausen, Joe Gluck, a very good boy, he's getting books for Christmas. Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Palmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Sean Doran, Toby Skills, Jungius, what's he doing on this list? Naughty through and through, unlike his wife Sarah, who gets a pogo stick. Tim Wazenski, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas Hayo, Sarah Montgomery, and Kat Esman. As you might expect on this one, Sharon, Toby, and myself did go on. We went off on all kinds of tangents. And in consequence, there was a lot of deleted material. So there is a whole cutting class episode, 45 minutes of additional chatter about stop motion, Tim Burton and Henry Selleck, Disney, Vincent Frankenweenie, and the original Nightmare Before Christmas poem, read by Christopher Lee. You can catch that on our Patreon this weekend. And we're calling it The Christmas Before Nightmares. Here's a clip. The Shadow King is a cancelled film written by Thank Henry you. Selleck initially. Disney made plans to release the project, but eventually backed out on the deal after spending a reported $50 million on it. That is more than twice as much as The Nightmare Before Christmas cost to do the whole thing. You could find that in your third drawer down underneath a cancelled game or something. Just put it out there. I we will be back next week with J.R.R. Tolkien's Rings of Power, an Amazon original that nobody asked for. In the meantime, for your Halloween pleasure, be sure to go to Amazon.com and find the paperback for the New Century Multiverse, Castle of the Moon. This is my Lady Dracula book. I've been writing this one for years, and it is really good. Until then, I have been the Pumpkin King. And I've been the Self-Stitching Ragdoll. And for another 364 days... Halloween's out! out. <laughs> and finally, everything worked out just fine. Christmas was saved, though there wasn't much time. But after that night, things were never the same. Each holiday now knew the other one's name. And though that one Christmas things got out of hand, I'm still rather fond of that skeleton man. So, Many years later, I thought I'd drop in. And there was old Jack still looking quite thin, with four or five skeleton children at hand playing strange little tunes in their xylophone band. And I asked old Jack, Do you remember the night when the sky was so dark and the moon shone so bright? When a million small children pretending to sleep nearly didn't have Christmas at all, so to speak, and would, if you could, turn that mighty clock back to that long, fateful night. Now, think carefully, Jack. Would you do the whole thing all over again, knowing what you know now, knowing what you knew then? And he smiled like the old pumpkin king that I knew, then turned and asked softly of me, Wouldn't you?
What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. This isn't fair. What's this? What's this? What's this? There's something very wrong. What's this? There's people singing songs. What's this? The streets are lined with little creatures laughing. Everybody seems so happy. Have I possibly gone daffy? What is this? What's this? There's children throwing snowballs instead of throwing heads. They're busy building toys and absolutely no one's dead. There's frost in every window. Oh, I can't believe my eyes. And in my bones I feel the warmth that's coming from inside. Oh, look. What's this? They're hanging mistletoe. They kiss? Why, that looks so unique. Inspired! They're gathering around here is story roasting chestnuts on a fire. What's this? What's this? In here, they've got a little tree. How queer! And who would ever think? And why? They're covering it with tiny little things. They've got electric lights on strings, and there's a smile in everyone. So now correct me if I'm wrong. This looks like fun, this looks like fun. Oh, could it be I got my wish? What's this? Oh my, what now? The children are asleep. But look, there's nothing underneath. No ghouls, no witches here to scream and scare them or ensnare them. Only little cozy things secure inside their dreamland. <sighs> What's this? The monsters are all missing and the nightmares can't be found. And in their place there seems to be good feeling all around. Instead of screams, I swear I can hear music in the air. The smell of cakes and pies are absolutely everywhere. The sights, the sounds, they're everywhere and all around. I've never felt so good before. This empty place inside of me is filling up. I simply cannot get enough. I want it, oh I want it, oh I want it for my own. I've got to know, I've got to know it is this place that I have found. What is this? Christmas time? Hmm.